0: Hi, this is Hell. It's producer Alex. It's another listener favorite from 2021. Chuck is back at it starting Monday,
1: January 3rd. But today we are revisiting an October conversation with writer Adam Smith on paupers and queer utopia. Big thanks to Jeff, Braden, and David G for suggesting this one. All right, stay safe. See you on the radio next week. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing this is hell poppers are likely not something you have thought about recently that is unless you are a user and there's a lot more users of amyl nitrate than you may think but there's something more to poppers than a quick 45 second rush as our guest today argues poppers may be a key element in the search for a queer utopia that eliminates all the categories that are imposed upon us, from hetero to gay and man to woman and everything between and outside of those categories. Here to act as our guide through the world and history of poppers, writer Adam Smith is author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Welcome to This is Hell, Adam. Hiya, Chuck. You all right? I'm uh, Doing great today This is a very, very interesting book, man I'm very fascinated by this you Thank start, you You start with a, a review of an art gallery show That describes a hairy gymnast performing a routine among strangers The performer dips onto his hands and knees Presses his belly to the floor Stretches his feet, then his hands Mimicking the length of a line that's on the floor A thin white strip pasted onto the floor And it measures 16.9 and then like 11 more digits Meters slicing right through the gallery space As the visitors talk to each other The artworks are a backdrop Except for the gymnast Who penetrates them in sparkling sweaty lycra Concentrated, poised, mischievous The performer is Luis Amalia And he is showing us a life on the balance beam You add a history of poppers Finds dozens of characters like Amalia Different, daring, difficult Whenever Amalia performs There is something wrong about him His non-binary body is hairy, pale Perceived as male And yet his soul is textured differently, light and dark, every every gender and more. The creature is mesmerizing a utopia of being, free from categories, cutting through the expectations placed on him. Are poppers then seen not only as something that is wrong, but are they also seen as a way to achieve a utopia of being?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's sort of similar story with Lots of different drugs and substances that we take. You know, they help us, they help us to access a different version of ourselves and in sometimes a more freer version of ourselves. And that was why I opened the book with that artist, Luis Amalia, that you're talking about there and reading from the book, just because uh, I, I feel that performers, especially queer performers like Luis show us what's the potential of our bodies and they just embody these different ways of imagining what we can do with our bodies in performance and that links to sex and poppers links to sex and poppers is just this rush that you get you know when you sniff for 45 seconds or a minute or something like that where you can sort of imagine a different way of living in your body so to me all of these things are connected and
1: you write that I wish I had seen Amalia's performance when I was an adolescent, although I probably would have rejected it. As I grew up, I allowed categories and expectations far too much power, and I didn't have the courage of Amalia to explore them artistically or to try to shake them off. I would have seen the freedom mm-hmm. he implied and turned away with teenage worry. What leads us <laughs> to give so much power to categories and expectations, especially when we're growing up? I know that that continues throughout our life, but especially when we're growing up, why do we give so much power to those categories and expectations,
0: oh, I wish I knew the answer to that because you could just save so many teenagers from their angst, couldn't you wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, it's the power of society. It's the way that, um, shame and stigma about uh, our bodies, our desires, our sexualities, uh, our um, our voices, our hair colour, our genders, our sexualities, all of this. Shame and stigma to do with that, which is basically just ways of that people have controlled other people and um, described the way that their bodies are and categorised them. Uh, all of this is just all about uh, control. And that control is somehow exercised through shame and stigma, which is handed down from generate, through generations, even though it changes every generation. And um, and that's just something that that we've all been living with for all of this time. And, you know, some of these shames and stigmas are going away. Uh, we're, I'm sure we're creating new ones all the time as well. And some of them are changing. Um, but yeah, if only I knew how to you know, speak to a teenager and get a teenager to not listen to those shames and those stigmas that um, that are not arising naturally within them. They're completely absorbed from the media or the family or whoever around them. And uh, and it's just really sad. And, you know, we've all been through that in some way or another. We've all gone through that. And some of us have listened to that voice for too long and listened to those shames and those stigmas for too long. And, uh, you know, we all, we all live with them in some degree and I guess a lot of my life I've been or at least in over recent years I've been you know trying to like not listen to them as much as I used to um, and moving more in my work moving more into into this this freer direction and this idea of queer utopia which you know would not include any shame and
1: stigma. <laughs> So let's talk about those the shame and stigma. How much impact does cuz I don't think this is something who uh somebody who is not gay would uh necessarily recognize. How much yeah. of an impact do shame and stigma have on gay culture and is there a growing recognition by non people who are not gay of the shame and stigma that is being imposed on gay people?
0: Yeah, well I think that um, we, we let's think historically for a minute. You know, a lot of my work is is based on looking at history, whether it's in this book, Deep Sniff, or in the podcast that I make, the logbooks, and other things as well. A lot of things are come from history. Uh, that's um, and and so I think that you can see the um, in in countries like the US and the UK, which are very very similar in many ways, and obviously. two countries are connected um you can see uh the way that shame and stigma have gradually around homosexuality specifically have been gradually created and um reinforced um you know it's not to say that uh men having sex with men was always seen as socially a bad thing in 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 every single place around the world like that is just not the case. Um, There have been moves and efforts to uh, create rules and laws and social customs around Uh, the badness of homosexuality, Uh, in fact, the creation of homosexuality as a concept didn't happen until uh, the uh, second half of the 19th century. Before then, there was no distinction between homosexuality and heterosexuality. And some people would say that the very creation of this idea that there were these two different sexualities meant that you could then say, oh, well, this one is one of them is good and one of them is bad. Uh, And then that was codified into laws. In the UK, we had laws against sodomy and uh you know against homosexual practices between men and that was on the books until 1967 uh in the UK uh and even when I was a child there was a law against teachers talking to school children about the existence of gay people or bisexual people or lesbians uh that was when I was at school and I'm only 36 uh that w- that was a law that was in place and so um so yeah I, I I tend to think historically and tend to think about the creation of um of all of these things I mean in in the US, the, uh, the famous, one of the famous things was the fight for the, um, removal of homosexuality from the DSM, which is the the book that, um, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists use as a sort of standard diagnostic tool. And the homosexuality as a, as a psychiatric problem was in that manual, in that profession's manual until 1973. So, um, so I think, you know, these are some of the kind of like the legal and technical ways that we have created, literally created the shame and the stigma by literally codifying being gay or being queer as being a bad thing. Um, but then all through the 20th century, uh, and especially in the US in the 70s and the UK in the 70s, uh, after the Stonewall uprising in 69 over there and the decriminalisation of partial Decriminalization of homosexuality in the UK in 1967. You know, from the late 60s and through the 70s, you just see more and more people just saying, you know what, we've had enough of this. This is, we've got to move away from this. We've got to change these laws. We've got to live our lives as freely as possible. And they could do that because they were concentrating themselves as communities in places like San Francisco, New York, and London. And uh, you just gradually see this assertion of of, of their freedom and their sexual um, freedom and their gender expression. And so um, so I think that there's really, you know, that is um, that's not the only moment in history where that, Really started to shift a lot, but I do think that that has been uh, a shift away from shame and stigma, and um, that started in that case in the seventies. Um, the poppers, the story of poppers, kind of intersects with that as well, which maybe we will get onto. Um, and the second half of your question, oh Chuck, I've forgotten. <laughs> it was about today, was it? Remind me. Yeah, it was. Uh, let me get back to where it was here. <laughs> How do they lead to a utopia of being? That's all. Oh to. right, yeah. So um, yeah, well, I guess. So, you know, a lot of people um, use this phrase queer utopia. I've heard it used um, by artists. Um, I've heard it used by intellectuals or or just or campaigners um for queer liberation and for the change in, in laws around um LGBTQI plus identities. Um, I've heard uh people using it sort of philosophically and um and I just thought when I was writing the book, I want to really think about what queer utopia means to me. And I was getting a bit tired of people using it to basically not really talk about utopia, but just to talk about And and an acceptance and a respect for the rights that I believe that queer people um, like have, but they're just not given to us yet. And so those are rights, things like, you know, um, like like legal rights, like uh, you know, non-discrimination in the workplace and stuff like that. Um, completely mundane legal rights, even gay marriage, completely mundane to me. But these are the rights that we should have. And I think a lot of people use queer utopia when they're really talking about um things like that and that's not really what utopia is about in my experience of utopia as a sort of framing of thinking about society and i kind of come from a science fiction sort of tradition of thinking about the future of society. You know, it's quite like wild and wacky and, and crazy and really, really, really forward thinking. Um, just cause I love sci-fi so much. So, so for me, utopia, thinking about utopia, is it's about something that can't really exist and won't ever exist, but it's about putting down a, a placeholder so far in the future that en- enables you to push yourself towards that. And so the steps along the way might be some of those legal things that I talked about, about freedoms. But actually the whole point of thinking about queer utopia is to think way further beyond that. And also it's always going to be moving. It's always relational to where you are now. So even if we get um, things like gay marriage, which we have got, that doesn't mean that we've reached... Liberation, <laughs> far from it. It, um, you know, it's always something like, okay, well, there's always more to be done in in freeing ourselves, and so that was how I started to think about queer utopia because I was thinking about how poppers basically create this sense of potential in our bodies, and the idea of categories that we might place on ourselves, like gay or like male, they sort of fall away a bit because you're just in the moment of of enjoying this rush that you have from poppers, and maybe you're having sex with yourself or with somebody else. And so it can be this really connective experience anyway, like that. And so the categories just are not relevant in that moment. And so I thought of categories alongside things like shame and stigma as things that would fall away gradually as we move ourselves towards this queer utopia and so if we're thinking about queer utopia it's it's more kind of emotional and uh something like that for me more than legal rights or legal recognition that's what the phrase means to me and it was just thinking about poppers and what they do to us and our brains in that moment that set me down that track and you point out that
1: these uh, there's, these are innovations of the 19th century. As journalist, Carl mm-hmm. Maria Kurthony, who coined the term homosexual, and his colleague Carl mm-hmm. Heinrich Ulrichs, who is sometimes referred to as the father of the LGBTQ mm-hmm. movement, these are both people from, the, again, the 19th century. So my question was going to be, you know, uh, what has changed? Is, is that what, when it comes to stigma and shame, is that what changed Is in the 19th century once these categories were determined of homosexual and lgbtq uh, is that what changed and actually led to stigma and shame
0: well i i I certainly think it contributed i mean that there's there's it's a double-edged sword here right because um in order to in, in order to see something properly in a way you have to be able to name it that's why doctors like to diagnose specific conditions in patients and why patients want specific diagnosis. Because once it's named, you can then set about treating it. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that homosexuality is something that needs to be treated. I'm just saying that as humans, that's something that we do. We like to name things so that we can like understand it. Um, and in the case of... Uh, being uh, gay or something like that to express it and to um, enjoy it, and so that was, I think, that was where people like the two Carls that you mentioned were coming from in uh, in in Europe in the late nineteenth century was 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 saying like, well, look, this is a feeling that we have. We are um, our bodies move us in this direction <laughs> towards members of the same sex, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. The only thing that's wrong is that the law is not accepting of that. And other people think that that's wrong. So that's the thing that needs to change. And that was really what their innovation was. Certainly Carl Heinrich Ulrich's innovation was, you know, as a lawyer standing up in front of 500 lawyers in 1867 and telling them, look, I'm, I'm a homosexual and the law's got to change. Like that might have been the first ever public coming out. We don't know, but that was certainly a huge deal in 19, sorry, in 1867. So to think about, um, the, uh, the use of categories there to assert who he was and to assert the rights that he should have um, means that those categories are incredibly valuable and important. And today, you know, we use those categories for the same reason. It's really, really still powerful when a person expresses their, um, their, sexu- their sexuality or their gender identity, um, whatever it is, it's a really powerful moment for them to do that. But also sometimes it's really hard. To do that um and you know we know that categories are important because if I go to a new city if I land in Chicago on holiday tomorrow and if I don't know anyone I'm gonna like Google to try and find the gay bar or the queer venue um, and so those categories are really useful because then it means I'll be able to find those those places and go there um, for a night out and meet maybe other people that I want to, that I want to meet. So the categories are really important in that sense, but I do think that there is something insidious in categorization and it's, it's a weird human thing that we do. Don't you think?
1: Yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about, though, was you point out that something about the way we live means that we trap our soul and our nature into categories. This is not Mm -hmm. the future we deserve. If I feel like a man who is gay, I have to wonder about the solidity of those words and therefore their Mm -hmm. usefulness. So to what extent do you think these categories are imposed on us by capitalism, by the market, because there are certainly yeah. communist, socialist dictatorships, theocracy, theocracies, and all forms of governance where this categorization exists. So what is yeah. capitalism's role in either fueling or maintaining these categories?
0: Oh, it's huge. You cannot understate it. And, you know, if if we, we just talk about the story of poppers for a moment. So, you know, poppers, originally, the original substance, amyl nitrite, was synthesized first in the middle of the 19th century. And scientists had written about it a little bit in papers. They studied the effect of sniffing poppers on the blood vessels. It dilates them. And on blood pressure, it lowers them. And they had uh, done tests in humans and in animals, but there was no use for that. Uh, And then a a doctor who's pretty gorgeous, if you want to look him up online, Thomas Brunton, got a great big Victorian beard. And uh, he was a doctor who was treating patients with angina. And he knew that the problem with uh, angina pain was that not enough blood was getting into the heart, so he had read those papers about the effect of sniffing amyl nitrite, and he tried it in his patients. That's how amyl nitrite became a therapy and a relief for angina pain, and he sort of popularized it as a a treatment, and so it was a medical substance, and it was doing really well for a few decades as a medical substance treating that kind of pain and other kind of uh, pains and maladies as well. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we don't exactly know when, but people started sniffing it uh, because it gave them pleasure and because it opened their bum holes so that they could have sex there and relaxed other muscles as well, which is always a nice thing to happen in sex. And so uh, at some point, it transitioned from a medical use to mostly a recreational and a sexual use. And of course, in the 60s, that that kind of use went through the roof in certain places in the US and among certain you know, hippie communities and stuff. And then at some point, people realized that, well, a a small number of people realized, look, there's a product here. There is an increasing number of gay men concentrated in San Francisco and in New York. And they are doing things like opening bookshops, creating gay magazines and gay books, uh, creating more and more gay venues um, and uh, doing all sorts of things that were basically um, you know, commercial activity because there was enough people uh, of, of that demographic that you could create products and services for. And so a couple of brain boxes who knew how relatively easy it was to actually make poppers decided to make some brands. There's still brands that are going today, ones like Rush and Locker Room, and uh, uh, create marketing and labels and... Um, advertising to sell this product to these specifically gay men that were using them. And that was the real like fire in a way under the, the poppers industry in that moment, you know, and those companies started in 1976, same year that Starbucks and Microsoft and Apple started, you know, some of these huge companies that we still have today. And so I don't think you can understate the, the value of, a marketable demographic to capitalism. You know, there's the whole thing about teenagers. The concept of a teenager being created in the whenever it was the 40s or the 50s, as well as a as a, as a new demographic that could be marketed and sold poppers to. Oh, not poppers, <laughs> sell products to. And so yeah, so I think that the story of poppers really is just one example of how uh, m- capitalism mixes with this idea of gay identity and the category of being gay um, and, uh, and how you can see how products are created around a particular group of people. And you point out this uh, this sale of poppers at a
1: place called Roland Chemist in Paddington. You write, the amount of amyl nitrate sold through Roland Chemist was extraordinary. In one 12-month period between 1975 and 1976, at the height of the pharmacy's poppers business, it sold 185,700 ampoules of amyl nitrate. <laughs> Let there be a gold plaque to Peter Batten Lucas and Paul Ritt- Roland Fletcher, <laughs> the directors of the business, for their contribution to the enhancement of pleasure. F- Fletcher and Lucas... Also, had two other shops on Earl's Co- Court Road, close to a cluster yeah. of gay pubs, including the Colern, which was popular with certain categories of gays, including Leathermen. They supplied their other shops through the Roland Chemist shop in Paddington. So, was this, if this was the era of height, uh, the height of poppers in London gay culture, what does this reveal about London gay culture in 1975 and 1976? What was happening in gay culture that led to this explosion
0: in popper culture? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it was the height. I mean, it might be, to be honest, that the height is right now because like poppers use is really, really big right now. Um, so I'm not sure about the height, but yeah, definitely it was a height or a peak, um, in that moment. And actually the fact that it, that story, the fact that it's about a, a chemist, a pharmacy, uh, selling amyl nitrate over the counter for people who came into the shop, to the pharmacy and said, Oh, I've got a heart problem. Can I have amyl nitrate?" And they knew that they were gay men. Uh, there are statements from the people that worked in the pharmacy knowing that it was gay men that were coming in and that they were going to use it for sex. But there wasn't really a restriction or a control on, on how it could be sold. Um, but the fact that in that year that I'm talking about, that, that was a huge supply of, of poppers or amyl nitrate through that pharmacy versus in the US, the creation in the same year of companies that were making poppers with brand names. That's an interesting contrast really between a US version of like business and and capitalism and a UK one, you know, like the British ones, um, I guess they missed the boat there. You know, they could have business, businesses in the UK could have created like poppers companies and poppers brand names so that they were sold in a way that they had started to be sold in the US um, as a sex product. Whereas here they were still being sold. uh, I live in London. They were still being sold through pharmacies for sort of fake medical use. Um, So that's, it's, it's an interesting contrast there. But in terms of what was going on in the 70s in London, well, from people who I know who were alive at that point and having sex at that point, um, you know, it was it was a really, really huge uh, gay and queer liberation moment. The early 70s in the UK had seen the gay liberation front made huge public uh, Gains really, not in actually winning rights, but in um, creating a huge and a a very loud agenda for gay rights and and queer liberation. Um, We had had the partial decriminalization of homosexuality in 67, which meant it was no longer illegal for two men to have sex as long as they weren't in the military and as long as they were doing it in private whatever that means. And as long as there were only two men, it couldn't be more than two men. So that's why we say it was a partial decriminalization. That happened in 67. But actually, very, very soon after that, you saw the rise of prosecutions uh, and persecution, actually, from police of men for having sex with men, uh, because there was a bit of a a backlash, really, against that partial decriminalization, where police um, used other laws to persecute men having sex with men, um, especially those that were doing it in public, in toilets and things like that. And um, so there was more arrests and more fines and things. And so the Gay Liberation Front, you know, here, which uh, had sort of taken also some of the tactics um, from the US, Gay Liberation Front, of being very uh, loud and boisterous and doing what they called ZAPs, which were, you know, um, sort of uh, activist um, interventions in in public life they were very very loud in the seven in the early 70s and they they sort of burnt out um after after a couple of years um but they left behind this this sense that actually, you know, things were changing and that you could push for change and you could get change and you could become freer, uh, as, as a group of people and you could fight for your rights and that there was a community of people around you who were like you, who were gay or lesbian, uh, et cetera. And who could, um, who, who would support you. And so, um when i hear people talk about the 70s i was born in 84 so it's before my time but when i hear people talk about the 70s here they talk about that sense of of freedom um, and of movement really in in society so that meant you know more and more gay venues opening many of them were still in the basement or you had to know like a password to get in but once you got in it was great and yeah just a lot and a lot of sex and a lot of different sexual categories uh like more and more leather guys um, or like motorbike type guys, uh, uh, obviously later on you get the clone. So all of that happened in the same in the U S as well, uh, until things started to shift in the early eighties when a lot of people were starting to get sick and then things did feel different. Things felt different,
1: and you'll even point out how poppers at one point was being linked to the rise of HIV. We've been speak- we are speaking with writer Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Smith. And you can find out more about Adam at his website that's linked right there at his Twitter account as well. So uh, you yeah. write that whereas uh, when you were mentioning uh, branding and uh, the and capitalism's impact here in the United States on all of these uh, poppers that they started producing, you write that whereas Roland Chemist salespeople knew their customers were gay men, mm-hmm. they didn't market their product at them. In the USA, however, companies had begun to manufacture, distribute, and advertise poppers as a product specifically for this demographic. Some mm-hmm. of the famous brands, as you were mentioning, Rush Locker Room, endure to this day under the banner of a company called the Pacific Western Distributing uh, Corporation, or PWD, founded in 1976. So did the U.S. uh, gay scene import poppers and popper culture from the London scene? Was London the birthplace of popper use? And is gay culture in the U.S. in that sense imported from the U.K.?
0: No, I think it's it's probably well okay it depends how far back you want to go chuck because the um you know the original amyl the original use in humans of amyl nitrite you know started in edinburgh in scotland which was the medical use that we talked about already um and so and i think that we we could we can say that we owe our poppers hits today to that particular doctor uh, thomas lauder brunton who gave poppers or amyl nitrite to his, to his patient um and he popularized it first through the UK, through the rest of Britain, through writing in The Lancet, which is a a very influential medical journal uh, still, and other outlets. And so he popularized it among medics in the UK. And then obviously, you know, medics in the US began to use and prescribe amyl nitrite as well for similar reasons. But the question really is, when did poppers transfer over from a medical use into a recreational and sexual use? And where was that? Um, I think it's probably like more likely to be in the US than in the UK, but it might have happened in both. And I've heard rumors about US medical students uh, in the 30s uh, sniffing poppers for fun. So you can imagine that. Um, but certainly when it was a UK, uh, company, um, which had, uh, Burroughs welcome pharmaceutical company that had set up in the U S as well. And, and they manufactured both in the U S and in the UK manufactured, uh, poppers, um, in a way, which gave poppers the name that we use for them today, amyl nitrite, uh, well poppers, sorry, gave amyl nitrite the name poppers because they were manufactured as pharma products in these little glass ampules that you would crush between your hands to release the vapor, and that crush would make a popping sound. Um, and so, I think it's it's really hard to say, you know, whether it was a British innovation or a US innovation that uh, that that became poppers. But I definitely think that the commercialization of poppers as a sex drug is a US innovation, and that was the thing that happened in the seventies when I saw that it
1: was at one point being made by a company with uh, the name of it was Burroughs Wellstone, I was so hoping that was related to William Burroughs, and it is not. Oh, right. I was <laughs> no, so different hoping. Because, uh, yeah, he uh, was uh, heir to the Burroughs Business Machine Company, so I was wondering, I was like, is right. this a spinoff of it? I'm so hoping, and it was not. <laughs> so you, you write the marketing of the product itself for poppers. This is a credit that can go to a man called... W.J. Freezer, within a year of founding P.W.D., again, Pacific Western Distributing Corporation, he was claiming in the Wall Street Journal that his Rush brand of poppers ought to be sold alongside shampoo and macaroni and cheese. He's quoted saying, if Safeway supermarket customers want the product, I don't see why it couldn't eventually be sold there. This is a quote (laughs) of his from an article in October 10th, 1977. So in your opinion- should poppers be
0: sold alongside shampoo and macaroni and cheese? Well, I'm I'm torn on this one because um on the one hand, I do it's think it's bad product that... placement right next to macaroni and cheese to begin <laughs> with. I mean, you're going to really confuse your senses if you if if you do all of that together. Uh, also, it depends on the quality of the macaroni and cheese because bought because like store bought macaroni and cheese, oh, I don't think it's ever going to be a good thing. Um, <laughs> um, no, but I think that there is, um, yes. Yeah, so there, there's there's definitely room, in my opinion, for legal reform around poppers in the US in the UK um, because. In both places, it's not a banned substance. Uh, it, some agencies advise people against using it, and the FDA just this summer uh, did exactly that, uh, but it's not a banned substance. They just advise people not to use it, uh, and uh, that happens every so often. Agencies advise the public to do that. Um, but So they're not banned substances, but they um, they cannot be sold for human consumption, and so that means they can't be labelled to explain how you use it safely if you're going to be sniffing poppers, which is how people sniff it. And um, so, so instead, that's why they're sold with the things that you said at the top of the hour, like room odorizer or leather cleaner that used to be sold as. Um, and it doesn't say, you know, here's how to sniff it safely, uh, because uh, it, it can't be sold for that purpose. And so if you go into a sex shop where you might buy them, uh, the person selling you them can't tell you what this product is and how to use it. So there's this weird legal... A deal, really, or a pact between, like, the law uh, manufacturers and users, where this product can be sold, but it can't be sold and explained safely about how to use it. And now, can you imagine if that was the case with, like, a kitchen cleaning product? You know that you keep, you know, in the in the kitchen below the kitchen sink. You know, a bleach or something. Like, can you imagine if the if the if the legal s- framework around that product was that you could not label how to use it safely. Um, that would just be really, really strange. So that's the situation that we're in with poppers. The fact is people are using it. People want to use it. It's safe. There are some harms, but they're really, really tiny. And, uh, you know, if we, we have to think about relative harms always when it comes to drugs and substances. So those relative harms are tiny. Um, and so it's strange that there, that this is, um, sold in this way. On the other hand, It's kind of fun and kind of queer that they occupy this very strange no-person's land in the law, where there is a label, but it's not really telling you the truth, and where there is a product, but it can't really be sold for the way that everyone thinks it should be uh, sold for, and, and that there is a use... And the use is sort of passed on from one person to the next about how to use it. I don't know. I find that really quite mysterious and quite queer and quite sort of like anti-label, anti-society. So there's there's an allure to me from you know to me for for poppers because they're in this strange status. So that's my that's my view on that. What do you think?
1: Well, uh, I was just curious. So how how is that different from let's say? cigarettes that have surgeon general warnings smokers clearly ignore or Sudafed as a component of meth uh, manufacturing mm. or buying alcohol with its warnings how are poppers even more of a lie than all of those misuses of products because this is a great quote from your article or your book uh, they may be the only product that the state allows to be sold on a lie
0: well i think the difference is that poppers are heavily associated with bum sex and obviously lots of people drink alcohol and then go and have bum sex or any other kind of sex. But the fact is that poppers, as they became a substance that was used recreationally, that it was so heavily associated with sex. That was the main driving force, the thrust, if you like, behind the recreationalization of poppers, um, that it sort of put them in a slightly different, um, I don't know, conception of, of, of what that of what that drug was, on you know, in the minds of the lawmakers and of regulators, um, and so, so I think that there's there is some degree of lawmakers and regulators being slightly queasy or squeamish about. Uh, uh, thinking too much about poppers or um, or regulating about them too much just because it's to do with with sex and um, yeah because like I said it it relaxes your bum hold so you can have sex there so so I think there's something about that that's different and then also um, you know the industry have not been able to become as powerful as the alcohol industry or the tobacco industry so you know they. You know you can. There are some companies that have made a lot of money. Some individuals that have made a lot of money from manufacturing poppers over the decades, but they're nowhere near on the scale of tobacco and, and alcohol, um, which have obviously been um, in previous decades been uh, a lot less controlled than they are now. And obviously, alcohol was extremely controlled in an earlier decade, so in the US. Um, so yeah, I think that it's just it's to do with basically the point here is it's to do with um, we do not have. And never have had a rational and sensible approach to the different drugs that we make and produce and want to consume, and that we have not assessed each of them on the basis of relative harms to the individual or to society, and then created laws and controls and safety mechanisms around each of those products that are relative to those harms to individuals and people. If we did, we would probably ban alcohol. Because it's hugely damaging to the individual who takes it a lot, and it's very damaging to society. You know, so much violence um, and mayhem is caused by alcohol to the you know within an individual's body and between people in society. You know, it's why people you know go to the pub and then have a fight, all of that stuff. And I'm not talking about the I'm not personally saying we should prohibit alcohol. I'm just saying the the policy around it, the regulation around it, compared to the harms, is like really really lax. And then when you compare. To poppers where uh, or even a drug like ecstasy you know um no one's ever taken ecstasy and then beaten somebody else up because of it whereas that's what happens on a daily basis in most pubs in britain because of alcohol so we just don't really judge these things like sensibly and and properly and i think that it's to do with um just how we how we view these things and how we view the different types of people that do it and i think the fact that poppers has been done by Uh, by certainly men having sex with men um, has put it in a different category to those other things. And this
1: Jay Free- Freezer, who uh, was who you quote uh, from the Wall Street yeah. Journal article, you write that uh, Jay Freezer pioneered the advertising of poppers in gay newspapers and magazines, such as Drummer, based in Los Angeles. The publication mm-hmm. was aimed at leather men, and according to Jack Frischer, who became its editor in chief in 1977, it was started by John Embry simply as a way to promote his own business selling poppers and leather wristbands by mail. The idea mm-hmm. was to wrap reports and editorial columns on the leather scene around ads for gay products, and it worked. You quote Frischer, writing in his history of the magazine, the name of the book is called Gay Pioneers. He writes, poppers kept drummer flying high. Popper dealers paid a huge chunk of advertising dollars buying full page display ads, including expensive inside covers and back covers. How important are poppers then in funding the emerging gay culture of the 1970s?
0: Oh, huge. And I think that quote from Jack explains why, because the thing is, You know, gay magazines in the 70s, uh, well, not just the 70s, but, um, you know, they many of them started in the in the in the 50s um Edith Ide started a lesbian newsletter from her office tri- typewriter in 1947 when she was told to look busy because they weren't very busy and so she started her lesbian newsletter and she went on to uh, to to write for the uh, Daughters of Bilitis which was the, the the US's first lesbian newsletter these these kind of things started in the 50s and they they were hugely important for connecting uh, people who, uh, shared that identity, you know, lesbians and gay men initially and primarily, and, uh, they were hugely important because, and they came through the mail. So they're kind of secret. You could even have a PO box if you were extra cautious. So magazines have really connected our communities through, uh, you know, many decades, most decades of the 20th century. And, uh, and so, and, you know, every magazine, I say this as a writer, <laughs> every magazine needs money to work on, to, to, to run on. And so, um, and that's going back to what we were saying earlier about the importance or, or the influence of capitalism on the creation of uh, gay culture and uh, or queer subcultures generally. Um, you know, is that the fact is that many of these magazines became uh, a place where people could advertise products and services. You know, gay travel agencies, gay insurance agencies, gay bookshops, all these things, and poppers hugely. So yeah, that that was definitely a feature of the of the scene in the US and the UK, and and poppers were part of that i have to say that the adverts that that some of those magazines uh, published were um are just like amazing pieces of are really um, and sometimes very very strange uh, and sometimes in my opinion like quite weird in how they thought about what the idealized male body was you know like really hunky butch guys with I call them like dinner plate size pecs and often they had like 18 abs per person you know these these like hyper masculine uh, guys uh, illustrations of these guys were used in these adverts. Um, And I think that that helped to create this idea of what like a gay person and a man should look like as well around that time. Um, And so, yeah, there's one thing about keeping the magazine going by by having a ready supply of advertising revenue. And then there's another thing about actually creating the idealized image of what this community was. Um, And that obviously carried on. And things are hugely different now because the magazine's business has, you know, in this case has mostly gone away and it's nowhere near as influential as it used to be. So did poppers then
1: impose a categorization of gay men in this, you know, muscly leatherman situation?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um,
1: because I'm just curious if you you feel peer pressure to be like those ads.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's something when we talk about shame and stigma, as we were doing earlier, that is absolutely still alive and kicking today. I mean, you know, if I go out, in London to like a rave or something um or a queer party as I did this weekend just gone you know you still see um and I still speak to people and I'm in this category as well you know people who are looking around at the other people there and looking at their bodies and comparing that comparing the bodies and comparing their own body with what they see there and the fact that we all still do that uh and the fact that there is often when you look at the instagram accounts of these um maybe these parties uh you know the the p- pictures that are posted do not represent the diversity of bodies that actually go there and i've spoken to people who say oh well, i don't i don't want to go to that party because look all the people look like that they're all hunks and i'm not a hunk so i'm not going to feel welcome there and i might say well i've been to that party and." Are not at all like what they look like on Instagram. There's a few people like that, obviously. And isn't it crap that they put those people on the Instagram and that's the only type of body that they put on the Instagram? What I'm saying is there is there is still so much shame and stigma around different kinds of bodies needing to look in one way or another. Uh, and and I and I think this is a huge part of gay culture. Uh, and um and I think that I, I would hope that the the offer of queer culture actually is to oppose that kind of thing and to say like you know what being queer is um, very much a feeling of who you are, and you're, if you're feeling radical and alternative and different to whatever the mainstream is telling you, including if it's telling you to look hunky like that, uh, then um, you know we've got no time for that. And so that's that's more why I more identify with with queerness and with queer culture and queer identity than I do with with gay identity, just because I think that often that gets really bogged down in this in these idealized versions of what men is, of what a man is and and. That's just really weird to me because that's just not a very <laughs> it's not a very good place to be in and so um yeah so i yeah <laughs> you're right that we might
1: uh, we might set the bar as high as this how we can find a way to embody queer utopia by working to remove our poisons one by one diseases should be first as it is the easiest scientists are working on it hardest is next our attitudes and the way we view each other why do you believe it is more difficult to change our attitudes and the way we view each other than it is to even end disease
0: wow yeah um well i just think that it seems that you can make the argument that that the scientific enterprise has gradually improved lives um over, over many, many years. And I think that that is, um, that is not without its drawbacks, and I'm not saying that that scientific progress and the, the you know, the the fruits of it is evenly distributed because it is really not. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate to live in a country where we have socialized healthcare. Um, people in the US are not. Um, that's just one example, but um, so, but I do think that like there is an obvious scientific progress that we're talking about. But actually, if you look at social progress and social attitudes, these go up and down all the way. Um, through history. And, um, you know, in many cases, in many ways right now, we are not in a good place in terms of attitudes, especially towards transgender people in the UK. You know, there's a huge uh, attack on transgender people right now, especially in a lot of uh, places in the media and a lot of uh, big opinion leaders in public life here. And so, um and and that wasn't the case 15 years ago i'm not saying that they were that trans people were fully liberated 15 years ago but we've definitely seen uh, a reversal of some of the, the positive social attitudes so i feel like um things the social attitudes go up up and down and it's harder in a way it's a lot harder to um make sustainable uh change there i think than it is than, than through science and through the elimination of disease. The fact is that we have done that, um, and we're in the process of doing that, of, of clamping down on this disease that's wreaking havoc still around the planet right now, uh, and, um, and all the other diseases as well. We're in the progress of doing that. And I don't know, I'm just slightly more optimistic about uh, the, the, the methods that we use to progress science than I am for the methods that we use to progress Uh, the social attitudes, even though I'm a storyteller and I'm much more on the social side, uh, you know, and and, and an artist and a writer and those things, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best at that. But it just feels to me that in a way it's a harder job Did the pandemic have any impact on the supply of
1: poppers? Because you point out that in 2010, the the industry was pretty much uh, centralized and one company closed down and suddenly there was a huge shortage for a short period of
0: time. So has the pandemic had any problems with the supply chain of poppers? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure. If anyone listening knows the answer to that, then I'm sure you would love to hear from them. (laughs) I will call them as soon as I know the person I should
1: call after the show. You write how gay men uh, were excluded from mainstream society in countries with a classically liberal tradition and their response to conceive of themselves as individuals with an immutable identity. Identity is present in such men by their nature, as homosexuals. Why does the liberal tradition not include gay people in
0: all being created equal or the pursuit of happiness? I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the, the classic liberal tradition that I'm talking about there is, you know, those things from the um, you know, starting in the 18th century and into the 19th century, those ideas of um of personal freedom and personal uh liberty to um express who who you are, to explore your own destiny, um, and on the economic side to um produce and sell and trade um as you wish. And that you know, these classic liberal ideas um i don't know exactly how it happened that um that a free sexuality became uh, you know, became anathema to that, um, or be, or somehow contrasted to that. I just, I think that it's, it's a, it's a great shame, and uh, obviously we have to point the finger somewhat at the Victorians and about, and at this, um, at this sort of, at, at any sort of conservative force that happens in society, which comes and goes in waves. And the US has has a huge conservative um, foundation, uh, partly because of Puritanism you know in the in, in those early days in the creation of the country um and the uh, power of uh, of religion especially christianity which is much more powerful in the us than it is here today um and so there are these conservative forces in society and i guess it's it's still it's all about control it's all about some people having the viewpoint that a person should live their life in in one way or another, and um, and and thinking basically people believing people tricking themselves into believing that a person's sexuality uh, has the potential to ha- um, harm someone else, even if they uh, they're engaging consensually. You know, it's only without consent where um, where sex and sexuality ha- harms other people. Otherwise, it's got nothing to do with anyone else. So, I, um, it's, it's a great shame that. That um, in traditionally liberal countries like the US and the UK, that, that, that the sexual freedom was something that got suppressed and that we had to fight so hard for and we're still having to fight so hard for.
1: You write that we inhale from our little bottles because we just want to be free of our bodies We know deep down a truth about our bodies They are the material that gives other people a hundred reasons to categorize us But there's other ways to have out-of-body experiences For instance, taking psilocybin and floating in a sensory deprivation tank for a couple of hours Followed by a walk in the woods, fantastic Or if you don't (laughs) want to go walk, just sit there So why choose poppers?
0: Well, I mean, like you said at the top, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, go out and tell people that they have to sniff poppers. Um, it's uh, I think that there are, you know, the, the arguments for poppers is just that um, it's it's cheap. Uh, it's a it's a quick rush. It doesn't last very long. So if you're worried about that, then it's over quite soon. Um, it is relatively harm free uh, unless you do something like drink it or unless you have some other medical problem which might uh, be wrong in combination, um, and uh, it's just a way of relaxing, of forgetting your inhibitions for a moment, letting the world fall, fall away, having a nice head rush, and if you're having sex with yourself or with someone else, it can only enhance that feeling uh, of of desire and just mm, really wanting sex, you know? and you also write that uh,
1: let's get back to the beginning of our conversation on categorization you write performance art like one, 16.9 followed by about 12 more digits by Lewis <laughs> Amalia uh, is especially good at doing this with regard to our bodies Amalia was a gymnast and an actress with a non-binary hairy body perceived as male performing on a line among a crowd of unwitting strangers watching the performance or just trying to avoid it each viewer glimpsed an alternative way to use their own body, body outside any categorization as Amalia showed the future we want to see can be created now, imagined by our artists. If a queer mm-hmm. utopia challenges categorizations, does it even challenge the categorization of queer? Is a queer utopia the end of such categories, including queer?
0: Well, yes and no, because the fact is that queer is this label that's not a label, you know, and it's it's basically, it's relative, it's moving. You know, when we look at Carl Heinrich, Heinrich Ulrich, who stood up and said, Um, He didn't say the word gay, but he said that he had sex with men and he was a man. Um, When he said that in 1867, we would now use the word gay to describe him. And if he had the word gay, he probably would have used it. He did have the word homosexual. Um, And that's a word that today we still know what that means. And some people still use that word gay, right? Um, So that is a, a solid identity categorization which is essentially, you know, socially constructed. Um, But the fact is that the word queer has meant different things in different times. And for many people, including myself in different Parts of my life, it has been an, it has been used as an insult and primarily used in society as an insult. But um, you know, since the mid '90s, people have used it more and more uh, to it to a certain kind of power. Um, and in that power is the fluidity of the word queer. And so, I don't know what the word queer is going to mean in five years' time or ten years' time. But I, I think that's the point that um, it will always be re- relational. It will and. Relation to the mainstream and relation in relation to uh, more solid ways of thinking about ourselves. So, I think that if any particular way that we live ourselves or describe ourselves becomes more solid, queer as a word will always be there to say, hmm, you know, there might be other ways of doing things, there might be other ways of living, there might be other ways of expressing your feelings or your identities. And I think that's really wonderful. And that's something that is an inherent um uh, sort of um part of the word queer really it's that's that's what the that's what the word means to me and so that's why I like to think of that as in terms of utopia because we're never going to get to utopia utopia does not exist it will not exist it will never exist you will never get there in in the same way you will never get to whatever you think of queerness is because it's always relational you're always moving and that to me is just a a, a sort of a freer better way of living um it's kind of like being a yes person of, 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 you know, like, well, yeah, let's just, let's explore this. Let's go down here. I want to say yes to, to exploring this thing um, and seeing where it takes me. It's about potential. Uh, and that's something that is, is the spirit of the book, really.
1: One last question for you. We've been speaking with writer Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, a history of poppers and queer futures. Follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Smith. One last question for you, Adam. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What does the state allowing the sale of a product based on a lie Say to you about capitalism today. What do Popper's <laughs> reveal
0: to you about capitalism? <sighs> I think Pop to me Popper's reveal a very very awkward uh, fact of capitalism <laughs> that, um, uh, and, and I say this as as a as a radical uh, and as a progressive that um, on the one hand. Capitalism is can be very efficient at giving us a product that uh, that means a lot to uh, lots of people and can help people who identify with a certain uh, way of living uh, can can help those people to come together and to to find themselves and to find each other through a product or service. But on the other hand, uh, the very fact of it creating that category uh, and creating that demographic is inherently um, not progressive, in my opinion. And so that's the, the double bind that we're in with capitalism.
1: Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is a fascinating book. I always like having conversations about topics that we haven't touched on before. We've never discussed poppers <laughs> before. So thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Take care. Bye.